as I mentioned, this is this is what we would call this is what Jen Wilkin would call a dedicated learning environment. Um, our mission at King's Cross, I'm worried about this tea, uh, so I'm just going to set it on the ground, is to glorify God and make disciples. And we have what you would call a philosophy of ministry, which is like, how do we think that we're actually able to do that? How do we think we're able to make disciples? What are the sort of tools in our discipleship toolkit? And we sat down early on and before the life of our church, really, and asked what we believe those were. And we came away with three. You could consider these like the three streams of discipleship. We want everything that we do here to go back to this. The first is the Bible. Um, that's the most obvious. We believe that the Bible is God's word, that it is true, that it's authoritative, that it's life-giving, that it's good. So in our preaching, in our kids' Sunday school, in our groups full of Bible, we want, we want to see ourselves in the biblical narrative. Um, second stream is what we call spiritual disciplines. That may sound like a big or heady word. All it means is spiritual practices or habits, things that Jesus did, that he taught his disciples to do, that they've taught us to do for 2,000 years. Things like praying, things like reading the Bible, things like fasting, going to church, giving, serving, things like this. The third stream of discipleship is theology or, or doctrine. Um, it's believing true things and right things about God. That's distinct from the Bible in the sense that the Bible is a narrative. It's not just a collection of true statements. It is that, but it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Theology is the task of going to Scripture and going to the, the last 2,000 years of, of church tradition and history that we have and asking the big questions, who is God being the first and most important of them? But who is humanity? What, what is humanity? What, uh, where did the world come from? What went wrong? How is it going to be made right? Where is this whole thing going? Things like that. So theology is, uh, is a, an, an activity of the mind, first and foremost, so this is the, when you came here tonight, the primary goal of this environment was not community. Although it's my contention that when you get together with a group of people and pursue something like theology, you kind of get community tossed in. Um, the primary aim was not for you to have fun, although I can't personally think of a more fun thing that you could be doing on a Friday <laughs> night. The primary goal is that we would learn. But to caveat that, the, the learning that we're going to do, and we're going to talk about this more, it's not... If we simply walk away here with more theological trivia or theological data, we've totally missed the point. Mm -hmm. The point is not for me to download information to you about God. Uh, That would not in and of itself be helpful. The goal is that you would learn more about God so that you can know God more, so that you would love him more. And in loving him, you would find your soul fulfilled. Um, There is a quote by uh, St. Augustine, his book, one of the most consequential books ever written on the nature of God is his book on the Trinity. And he, one of the things I love in reading on the Trinity is how humble Augustine actually is about the theological task. But he, he says, and I think this is a beautiful quote just to set out what our goal is. He says, the fullness of our happiness beyond which there is none else is to enjoy God in whose image we were made. The fullness of our happiness, beyond which there is nothing else, is to enjoy God in whose image we were made. And we cannot enjoy God unless we know him, and we can't know him unless we know something about him. So if I were to tell some of you, if I were to start talking about how much I love my wife and enjoy my wife, and then I start to describe her uh, to Abby, who may, I don't know if you've ever met my wife, but you're the only one here who doesn't know her. So if I were to say... Uh, she does the work. 
worship? Just pretend you've never seen her <laughs> for the sake of this metaphor. Uh, if I were to say, you know, I love Lindsay. She's the best wife in the world. She's tall, brunette, very dark-skinned. She was a college athlete. She played basketball. She, lo- she loves nothing more than on a Saturday to cozy up on the couch and watch basketball and football with me. Some of you in the room would start to blow the whistle and say, that is not your wife, man. You're talking about somebody else. Obviously, for me to really and truly love my wife or anybody, I have to know her. But there's this virtuous cycle that happens when we talk about the love of another person or the love of God, and that is that you have to love somebody in order to want to get to know them. But if they're a person worth knowing and loving, the more you get to know them, the more you love them. And the more you love them, the more you want to go back and learn about them more. And it's just this cycle that leads you going further and further up. The idea that theology is a sort of ivory tower discipline that has nothing to do with our hearts may be true in some context, but that's not Christian theology. Christian theology ought to lead us to love God more and as we love him, get to know him more. There is a particular posture that we do, uh, that we take when we do Christian theology. And this is another quote from the same book, Augustine on the Trinity. He says, and this, this will be my, my uh, invitation to you all as I'm guiding you in this tonight. He's, he says to his reader, whenever you are certain, whenever you are as certain about something as I am, go forward with me. Whenever you stick equally fast, he's saying, whenever you get stuck, like I do, continue seeking with me. Whenever you notice that you have gone wrong, come back to me. Or whenever you notice that I have gone wrong, call me back to you. In this way, let us set out along Charity Street together. I love that image. Uh, Charity for Augustine, caritas, the Latin word, means more than just like being sympathetic to somebody. It means love, really. He's saying, let us set out on the street of pursuing love together in the spirit of love. So that's my invitation to you all with the reminder that this, there, you all in this room have different levels of experience, different levels of knowledge of these sorts of things. When we set out to know God, rest assured that the gap between the person, the gap, let's put it this way. The gap between my three-year-old daughter's knowledge of God, who is three, and my knowledge of God, I have a PhD in theology, that gap is infinitely smaller than the gap between what I know about God and what there is to be known about God. So all of us in this room, wherever we are, like we're just seeking together. The gap is in comparison to what could be known about God and what we'll spend an infinity learning about him, there is for all intents and purposes no gap between us. We're just setting out together to see what God has revealed to us about himself. So Psalm 119, verse 18, you don't need to turn there, but this is just going to be sort of our opening prayer as we get into this tonight. So would you all pray with me? Psalmist writes, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. Father, we're asking that you would send your spirit to open our eyes so that we could contemplate, consider, meditate on, be enriched and nourished by wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're asking the first and most fundamental question of any really theological system, really really the world, which is, who is God? There's three parts to this discussion tonight, and the way this will work is I'll kind of give three shortish lectures in between each one. There will be some sort of either group discussion or sort of personal reflection time. The first part is on God's existence, 
The second is on God's knowability. Can we know him? And the third is on God's nature. What is he actually like? So first, does God exist? That's a question that 500 years ago and beyond uh, would have been so obvious that it would have been almost nonsensical to ask it. You might have found the crazy fringe atheist somewhere 600 years ago, but they would not have been taken seriously in society. Everybody, particularly in the West, everybody believed in God or gods, but in the West, people believed in the Christian God, more or less. Uh, Today, that's obviously a very contested question. If you were to just go out into the streets here and ask, does God exist? You would get a lot of different answers with different levels of certainty. Why has that happened? Why has that changed? There's a, there's a sort of theory uh, that I would say is sort of a pop-level theory that, that basically 500 years ago, we needed God to explain the phenomena of the universe. We needed God to explain hurricanes and tornadoes. We needed God to ex- explain plagues and sickness and death. Today, we don't, we don't need him to explain those things anymore. We have science, right? We have reason. We, we went through the Enlightenment, so we don't need God anymore. His philosopher named Charles Taylor who wrote a book called A Secular Age that's basically written to combat that thesis. And he says, actually, there's a lot of stuff going on that has happened that has changed over the last 500 years that has contributed to uh, this change in belief in God. I want to give you four reasons that he says that we went from an era where it was very, very hard, almost impossible not to believe in God, to an age where it's very difficult to believe in God. So these are four terms that are coined by Taylor the First is disenchantment. So 500 years ago, Taylor says, people had an enchanted worldview. People did not want to go out into the woods at night, not because there might be a coyote, but because there might be elves and goblins. Uh, When you looked at, at physical objects 500 years ago, they were suffused with spiritual meaning. There, there was no such thing as a mere, uh, you know, tree. There was no such thing as a mere thunderstorm. There was no such thing as a mere person. There was always more to what was going on than met the eye. Over the last 500 years, uh, because of the proliferation of, of modern science, among other things, we have stopped viewing things as being enchanted. We, we now live in a disenchanted world where nothing is more than what meets the eye. Everything is just kind of what you see is what you get for most people. The second concept that Taylor talks about is the imminent frame. Eminence is opposed to transcendence. Uh, somebody tell me what transcendence means. Justin, I'm calling on you. What's transcendence? Um, like beyond what is like tangible. Yeah, something that's big, that's up there, that's out in the in the great beyond, that is uh, metaphysical, like that's maybe spiritual, but it certainly is just like not can't be experienced with the senses. It's above and beyond all that. Contrast that to what is imminent. What is imminent is what's right in front of you, what you can see and feel and and touch and taste and hear and smell. I think I said one of those twice. Uh, The five senses, right? So Taylor says that we live in in a world where we have an imminent frame. Our frame of reference doesn't even account for the possibility of transcendence. All that we ever think about is what's right in front of us. And I would say that this has been, this is 
way more so than when he wrote the book 20 or so years ago because of what? Because of the thing that is literally always on your person, in your pocket, or right in front of your face. Like, everything is so imminent that we filter everything through the lens of a phone screen. So when, obviously, when all that you think about is what is imminent, you're not thinking, you're not constantly thinking about God. As opposed to 500 years ago, you couldn't make sense of anything in the world without reference to God. The third, and for my money, the most significant one, and if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me talk about this from the pulpit, is expressive individualism. 500 years ago, how did people make sense of their identity? It was given to them by their religion, which they inherited. They did not choose. It was given to them by their family trade. They did what their dads did. It was given to them by their, uh, their religion, or said that their race, their nationality. Uh, it was, you, you understood, you made sense of your identity by looking up to God and by looking around to your community. Contrast that to today. Let's think of the plot, the narrative of every single Disney movie that we ever grew up watching. What are they all about? They're all about throwing off the, the external identities that are given to you by your family, your community, tradition, authority, and expressing your true identity over and against those authority figures. Um, expressive individualism is a term that means basically that our identities now come from within rather than from without. They're not placed on us. We express them to the world. We look down into our hearts. We see what we desire. Whatever we desire, we, we identify with our actual identity, and then we express that to the world. We no longer look to God for reference to who we are. We look to self. And in a sense, that actually, some would argue that that is actually treating ourselves as a sort of God. The fourth term that Taylor gives is what he calls the buffered self. Buffered here is being used uh, in contrast to 500 years ago, what he called the poorest self. Who's the most famous poorest person in recent pop culture? SpongeBob, right? So what does it mean to be poorest? It means to have holes in you, like that you can be penetrated by forces from outside. Things can come in and affect you and change you that you're sort of defenseless against, right? 500 years ago, you could at any point be subject to the power of demons or spirits or angels in traditional culture still today in the global south to the spirits of ancestors. You were vulnerable to forces beyond your control. That was your worldview. Today, in the sort of sovereign self worldview, I am not vulnerable to any sort of force beyond my control, right? I'm kind of the the captain of my own ship, the captain of my own destiny, and my identity is not vulnerable to forces acting on me from outside. As a side note, this is a, this is a article that I've never written or a talk that I've never given, but that I've thought about a lot. I think that one of the reasons why our generation is so anxious and depressed one of the reasons is because we grew up being taught that we were buffered selves and we have witnessed so much of the la- over the last 10 years that has, has reawakened in us the reality that we are actually very porous and that things could at any moment act upon us in a way that could totally destroy our lives. But we're still operating with this in our mind and we can't make sense of like why, why these two things don't fit together. And so we're always worried that something is going to happen to us. Um, All of these things, all these realities, make it difficult for us to believe in God. And it's worth noting that because the most, 
Taylor's um, book is called A Secular Age. And he's using secular not to refer to like atheists. He's using it to refer to a sort of public square where every religious worldview has to defend itself and justify itself and where every religious person deals with some measure of doubt. Nobody is 100% certain. That's the reality of the secular age. And so even as we come here believing in God, why would we spend the first part of our conversation on the existence of God? Because we all need to be refortified with the belief in God. It's, it's always good to, to build that back up in us. So in spite of these realities, there's still very good reason to believe in God. First, and I'm only going to mention this and kind of pass over it, because belief in God makes more sense of the world than unbelief. By which I mean belief in God makes more sense of your experience of the world than unbelief. Uh, if you want to dig more into that idea, Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, I would recommend to all of you. Or if you're a podcast listener, he has a podcast. It was a series of talks that he gave in New York that was for unbelieving people. Like it was, if you were a member at Redeemer, you had to bring an unbelieving skeptical friend with you to be allowed to come to the event. Mm-hmm. And it's called Questioning Christianity. And it's basically him going through each of the chapters of that book in the form of a talk. So he talks about things like why Christianity gives a more hopeful pursuit of justice in the world than secularism. Mm -hmm. Why Christianity gives you a more sturdy meaning and identity in your life and things like this. I'm going to assume that most of you already believe that Christianity makes better sense of the world than unbelief. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But especially for the sake of like knowing how to talk to unbelieving or doubting friends about Christianity, that's just an invaluable resource. Second, though, in addition to that, is there are good arguments for belief in God. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five. There are several what we call classical arguments for God. And then some contemporary arguments for God. So I'm going to give you three. And this is going to, the first one is going to be the headiest, most intellectual part of this conversation tonight. This is called the ontological argument for God. Now, uh, I, like I said, I've been to seminary. I have a PhD in theology. And I still am not really sure what the ontological argument for God is. Um, It's one of those things that... The moment that I think I've grasped it, I start to try to explain it and realize I have no idea what I'm saying. And then it comes back to me for a second. And just as soon as I start to think it makes sense, I start to think that doesn't work at all. So it was basically created by St. Anselm in the Middle Ages, around 1000 or so, 1100. And some people will say that this is a foolproof argument for the existence of God. And other people will say it's totally meaningless. But it goes like this. Point one is an assumption. It is that God is the greatest being that can possibly be conceived of. So God is the being than which nothing greater could be conceived. Okay? Point two is another assumption, and it is that any being that actually exists is greater than a being that simply is conceived of or that exists in the mind. So an object that exists in reality is greater than an object that just exists in my mind. A cup of coffee in my mind is nice, but in my hand, in my mouth, is even better. Point three, since God can be conceived of, and since God is the being than which nothing greater can be conceived, God must exist. <laughs> Do you see the leap that he's making? He's saying, if God is the being than which nothing greater can exist, than which nothing greater can be conceived of, and we can conceive of him, 
He must exist because an object in reality is, is greater than an object merely conceived of. Again, I'm not sure if this argument works, and I'm not totally sure that I understand it, but it is one of the most important arguments for God. And if that just landed on you, you're like, I have no idea what that just was. It's okay. You don't need the ontological argument for God, but I, I do feel a duty to tell you about it. So if it worked for any of you, great. If not, join the club. <laughs> the second argument, or really a series of arguments for God, is the cosmological argument for God. So the root word here is cosmos. Um, root word of ontological, ontology, just refers to the existence of something or something, the, the study of being. The cosmos refers, obviously, to the cosmos, to creation. Uh, this is associated with St. Thomas Aquinas, but it also goes back to Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. Um, it's a series of arguments, but the most well-known is that, for so Aristotle says that whatever moves has been set in motion by something else. So anything that you see moving, something caused it to move. But if you go back and you explain those movements, at some point there has to be what Aristotle calls an unmoved mover. There has to be something or somebody who started it all. Otherwise, you have to go back infinitely to keep on explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining with no regression, with no end, right? So just logically speaking, there has to be some unmoved mover. There has to be some first being, first mover, who itself or himself or herself cannot be moved by something else. And that is God, according to Aquinas. The third classical argument is the teleological argument. And this, the root word of this is telos, which means, it's a Greek word that means the goal or the end of something, the aim of something, the point of something. And it basically looks at the reality of nature in the created world and says, it just seems like there's a purpose to this. It seems like it, it fits together too well for it to be a total random accident. There's sort of contemporary versions of this are called like the fine-tuning argument, that if you look at the odds that there could be a, a, a planet that could house human beings are so absurd that it just seems like it had to be on purpose, that a creator, a designer, seems more logical than the absence of a creator or designer. Those are the three classical arguments for God. One point just to make about these is Keller wrote a book in 2008 called The Reason for God where he sets out these, these arguments. In 2016, he wrote Making Sense of God, which is the book that I already referenced. And he said that, that he realized shortly after writing the book about all these arguments that these weren't landing on people in New York City where he was pastoring mm. because they were so far removed from even having a general framework for God and even... In some ways, they didn't have any desire that God would exist. So these arguments didn't do anything for them. So he wrote Making Sense of God eight years later, and he said it was kind of like the prequel to the reason for God. The goal, he says, of Making Sense of God is to make people want Christianity to be true, to help them see how Christianity offers a better world and a better hope and a better future than secularism. And then once you, once you help people get to the place where they want Christianity to be true— you hit them with the actual logical arguments to help get them over the edge. So the point of that is I don't find these super helpful necessarily with like trying to win arguments with unbelievers. Not that any of you that, – that's not really a good goal anyway. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. But I hope that's helpful. Uh, two contemporary arguments. 
I'm not going to write these down because these are words that we're more familiar with, are the argument from beauty and the argument from morality. The argument from beauty basically says that from a, from a naturalistic, atheistic, um, biological, evolutionary worldview, what's the purpose of beauty? Some sort of motivational tool for to further survival. Yeah, those. for procreation. Yeah. To attract animals to each other so that they will have babies. Mm-hmm. But scientists are increasingly seeing that there is, there is superfluous beauty in the world. There is beauty that does not contribute to procreation. So I remember reading an article a few years ago in the New York Times Magazine about this evolutionary mystery of why the certain species of birds had, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was some element of beauty in this species of birds that had nothing to do with mating. And they they were trying to figure out, like, why is this there? It doesn't contribute anything to their their procreation and the survival of their race and their species. And uh, you could, you could, you know, map that onto your own experience, right? Like what are some, some of the most beautiful moments in your lives? Sunsets, sunrises, conversations with friends, the fall colors, like there, there are lots of things, a piece of art, a piece of music, like there are beautiful moments that, that serve no functional purpose. There's no utilitarian purpose. So the, the argument for, from beauty would be that the existence of a God makes better sense of that reality than not. The other argument is the argument from morality. Um, the sort of best evolutionary explanation for morality <clears throat> is that in groups develop certain moral codes that, that help advance the survival of that in-group. And as time goes by and the in-group grows and we grow to include people of different races, different ethnic- ethnicities, different what, abilities, whatever, uh, the moral code grows to include loving all people and not just people of your in-group. The, the problem, there are plenty of problems with that, but one is that by that logic, you have to admit that there was a time when it was not immoral to be racist, for example, or sexist, or whatever other kind of ist you want to, to say. By that argument, by the way, I was teaching a group of high school seniors at our last church one time on this topic, and I said what I'm about to say and somehow I communicated it wrongly to where they thought that I was advancing my own argument, and I wasn't. You'll understand when I say this. But by this argument, you could not make the case that what the Nazis did in Germany was immoral, right? If, if their view of their in-group was blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryans, then who are we to say, if morality is relative, that they did anything wrong? And all of these seniors were just aghast that I was uh, promoting this argument. They did not understand what I was saying. The point is that morality can't be that relative because there are things that every human being knows are atrocious and wrong and evil. We know it in our conscience. We know it across cultures, across time, and across space. So there has to be some reason for morality to not be totally relative. Uh, And the existence of God gives a better explanation for that than non-existence. All right, that was a lot of information. I want you guys to spend, I don't know, five, six, seven minutes discussing, maybe just split up into like two or three groups, and there's some discussion questions uh, for you to talk through. Which of these did you find most helpful or unhelpful, or which resonated with you most? Which of the arguments for God did you find most helpful? Are there any that you just totally didn't grasp?
I'd be interested if anybody doesn't say the ontological argument. 